0: back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you're new, we hope you'll stick around and become a part of what God's doing in our midst. Right now we're in a series in the life of Solomon called Cracks in the Foundation. His story as a king was told to explain why Israel was carried off into exile, and it helps us to examine the cracks in the foundation of our own lives and deal with them before they spread. Today's passage is about the dedication of the temple. And at first that might not seem very relevant to you. And in fact, the people who first read this may have first felt the same thing. This account of the temple's dedication was written to people who'd seen the temple destroyed in the Babylonian invasion. What's the point of reminding them of its establishment? It's actually the same reason that it was recorded in our Bibles. It teaches us how to get close to a holy God Now, when I think of the dedication of Solomon's Temple in Jerusalem, it reminds me a little bit of the construction of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in L.A. Since opening in 2003, Frank Gehry's stainless steel building has become an iconic landmark for the city. Concert goers love it, but the neighbors weren't quite as thrilled at first. The problem was that the huge polished steel surfaces put out an incredible glare. It was a hazard for drivers who couldn't see because of the blinding light. It was even worse for the residents in nearby condos. When the sun hit at at the right angle, the temperature in their apartments would rise by 10 degrees. Even with the drapes closed, their homes would heat up, making even their furniture hot to touch. In some locations near the hall, they clocked temperatures of 59 degrees Celsius. They eventually had to sand down the stainless steel surfaces to diffuse the reflection and reduce the glare. The problem of this concert hall is a little bit like the dilemma of getting close to a holy God. We often don't account for the glare associated with approaching someone who shines in such dazzling light. He's holy, but we're not. And we can't solve the problem by scuffing up his surfaces. Failing to account for God's holiness is what landed Israel in Babylon, and it's what derails many of our attempts at spirituality today. So, let's look to God's Word for help in understanding how to get close to a holy God. If you have a Bible handy, turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, just click on the link for today's passage in the description below. I'll read from verse 1 to 21. 1 Kings 8 verses... 1-21 1-21 Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers, houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ithanim, which is in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house. In the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim for the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles and the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary but they cannot be seen from outside and they are there to this day There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all of the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord has promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of God. Now this passage shows us three key aspects of a close walk with a holy God. The first is this, God must be approached with a formal invitation. A relationship with God doesn't just happen automatically or casually. It needs to be approached with a level of formality that's appropriate to who he is. Now, as the scene opens in verse 1, we're to picture a gathering on a scale that we seldom witness. It's a kind of fanfare that accompanies a royal wedding. Solomon has gathered everyone who's anyone. There are elders, tribal heads, and family representatives who make up the lead welcoming committee. But verse two says that all the men of Israel assembled. So there's an entire nation that stands at attention. A a parallel account in Chronicles fills in some of the details. There are Levitical singers that make up a choir and others that are playing cymbals and harps and lyres. 120 priests accompany on trumpets as they sing. And so the sound would echo right across the city. And the reason for all the ceremony is clear from Solomon's choice of a date. In verse 3, we're told that Solomon planned these festivities to take place, and it says, at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Now that feast was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a time when the entire nation came together in makeshift tents as a way of remembering their time in the wilderness. When I talk to people about tents and going camping, (laughs) many people tell me stories of why they'll never do it. Whether it's the bugs or being at the mercy of the weather or sleeping on the ground, living in a tent for a few days isn't very attractive to many people. Well, the Israelites had to do it for 40 years. So, when they moved into permanent homes, the sense of relief must have been unimaginable. At the Feast of Tabernacles, they remembered how God had sustained them during those years. But up until this point, God was still in a tent, He was still camping. It was like He could pack up his bags and leave town anytime. So, they built a permanent home for Him in the capital of their city. It was their way of saying, we want you in the center of our lives. We want you to make your home with us. We wanna make this permanent. And if some of the ceremony and formality feels a little bit like a wedding, that's probably deliberate. Now, weddings aren't as popular today. People instead want the benefits of marriage without the formality of it. We want casual relationships with our options open. We fool around. Hook up, play the field. And we approach God the same way. But that's not the way you get close to a holy God. I don't want to compare him to Beyonce, but God's a ring on the finger type. He's into permanent, exclusive relationship with his people. Have you formalized a relationship with him? Have you personally invited him into your life through repentance and faith? Have you said, I want you to be my God, and I want you to live with me and be the center of my life? Have you expressed that in baptism? You don't just fall into a relationship with a God who is, ho- who is this holy. You approach him with a formal invitation. You also approach him on his terms, not yours. God isn't flattered by do-it-yourself religion. He tells us how to approach Him, and He responds to our obedience, not our innovation. God must be approached on His terms, not ours. Remember the crowd that we saw gathered at the temple to celebrate God coming to permanently dwell among His people? With all those people, it might seem strange to read in verse 3 that the priests have to do all the work. There are plenty of people that could have helped out. but it's the priests who are charged with bringing the ark, and together with the Levites, they carry all of the holy vessels into the temple. They do that because God had commanded them to do it. It's a sign that for all of Solomon's wisdom, he hasn't come up with a new plan for who would handle the things of God. He's he's chosen obedience over innovation, and that's just how God wants it. That's also what's going on when it makes a point of mentioning how long the poles to carry the ark were in verse 8. The ark was to represent the place of God's dwelling, the presence of God, and as such, it was too holy to even touch. So, God commanded the priest to carry it with poles. Now, in David's day, the people thought they had a better idea, Carrying an ark on poles for any distance was uncomfortable. Your your shoulders get sore. So they decided to put it on a cart and have it carried by oxen instead. It was way more comfortable. And they were convinced that they had improved on God's instructions. (laughs) But of course they hadn't. They They learned that when the oxen stumbled and the ark slipped and a man named Uzzah reached out his hand to steady it. He was struck down on the spot and Israel learned just how holy God really is. Approaching God on his terms was what was going through Solomon's mind when he made all those sacrifices as well. Verse 5 says that Solomon sacrificed so many sheep and oxen they couldn't be counted or numbered. It's not that God just likes to kill animals. But under the Old Covenant, he did everything he could to try and convince us that the penalty of our sin is death. And the only way we make peace with him is through a sacrifice of a substitute. The New Testament declares Jesus is that sacrifice. He died in our place that we might approach God on his terms. Ephesians 5.2 says this, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If you're trying to relate to God without the sacrifice of God, then you're just improvising. You're saying, I want this relationship on my terms, not yours. And that's not how you get close to a holy God. I don't think it should surprise us that God has to be approached on his terms and not ours. We experience this in other relationships right (laughs) am i the only husband that's had to learn this the hard way (laughs) i remember planning a day to spend with jennifer down in disney world in florida my basic approach to vacations is i don't know when i'll ever come back i'd hate to miss out on anything so i better pack as much into this time as i possibly can on our first day, I had us crisscrossing across parks to maximize every minute of the time with the best possible rides and meals that we could take advantage of. didn't occur to me that the July heat was stifling and my dear wife was wilting and in search of a cafe or at least a bench. At some point, Jennifer stopped me and was like, how do I get off this tour and is there a refund somewhere? Planning the day I thought she would enjoy instead of listening to her tell me the day that she would enjoy was my pride and selfishness taking over. And the same thing happens when we improvise how we approach and relate to God. We come to him on his terms, not ours. And we also approach him with awe. We don't relate as peers with a God who spoke the universe into existence. We're not on the same level. We don't call the shots in the relationship. We approach him with awe. That gets expressed in this passage in some interesting ways. First of all, in verse 9, the author goes out of his way to tell us this. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there. The point he's making is, it's not as if God lives in the box. He was never curled up inside the ark, and he never actually lived in the temple, as if it could somehow contain him in some way. That's also why Solomon repeats an unusual phrase five times in his prayer of blessing. In verse 17, Solomon says, It was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord find it odd that you would build a house for someone's name? (laughs) And yet, that's the phrase that gets repeated in verses 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. It's a way of expressing the idea that God has drawn near and uniquely revealed his presence in this place, but without containing him in any way. Paul Young might have said, the temple is where God hangs his hat. And when we forget that, we can be tempted to think we can leave God at church. We can put on a good smile and our best behavior for an hour on Sunday morning, but then live as if God doesn't see what's going on the rest of the week. God is infinite. God is everywhere. God is all powerful. The temple is just where he chose to specially reveal his glory. But even that's in a limited way. That's why God reveals himself in dark clouds. In verse 10, for instance, it says, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. In fact, the cloud was so thick that the priests couldn't even stand there anymore. And then in verse 12, Solomon announces, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. That's not how we usually picture the presence of God, is it? What would you expect to see? I think we'd normally picture light, wouldn't we? Nobody says, when I picture the presence of God, I think of a thick black cloud. But this is how God communicates the fact that we see only a reflection of who he really is. The cloud is a little bit like the initial solution that they had for the Walt Disney concert hall. The glare was so bright, they initially covered it in mesh blankets. And that worked, but it also hid the beauty of the building. The darkness veils God's glory. But it also reminds us that there's mystery to him. Even as he reveals himself to us, there's much about God and his ways that we just don't know, and we can't know, at least in this life. Paul said it best in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verse 12. He said, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. His point is that there's so much that we don't know about God, so much that we can't know about him. There's mystery. We see only a reflection of his true glory. And when we forget that, we say things like, I can't believe that a good God would allow something like that. Young children don't understand everything their parents do. But the gap between us and God is far greater than between children and adults. God does what we would do if we knew what he knows and if we were as good as he is. But the cloud reminds us that we can't see him clearly in this life. There's much about who he is and what he does that we have to accept by faith and treat him with the reverence and awe that he's due. Now the Israelites who first read about the dedication of Solomon's temple had forgotten these truths. The way they related to God had become routine. They had long since packed up their trumpets. They treated God casually and like in a bad marriage, they had begun to take him for granted. They related to him on their terms, not his. They didn't treat him as holy. And they didn't approach him with awe. They thought of him as someone they could contain, someone that they had all figured out. And so one day, the glory just left the temple. The wonder that the people experienced this day was gone. And years later, this passage was given to them as an explanation to help them to understand why. And it's given to us for that very same reason you long for the glory that belongs to God alone? Glory that would shake this building? Glory that would fill this area with smoke so thick we couldn't even stand? Glory that can't be contained by our program or measured by our tools? According to the New Testament, that glory is now on display in Jesus Christ. John wrote... The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the glory of God. And maybe you have felt little inklings of that glory. You felt something and you sensed that it's real. But you know you've never formally invited him in. You've never asked him to make his permanent home with you. Do that today with a prayer of faith, express that faith in baptism, but come to him on his terms. A God this glorious doesn't take orders from us. We're not the ones calling the shots in the relationship. He is. His commands aren't suggestions. He deserves our obedience, but not in some cold, begrudging kind of way. We follow him in awe. We walk with him in wonder. We acknowledge the mystery and realize that he can't be contained. And we kneel before him in amazement that such a great and glorious God would show mercy to us, pour out his love in our lives, and not only make his home with us, but prepare an eternal home for us with him. Let's look to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father and holy God in heaven above. We recognize that you are great and glorious and holy and awesome. And we feel our smallness before you. Who are we that you should take notice of us? Who are we that you should show care and concern and even the greatness of your love. Forgive us for the casual thoughts that we have towards you. Forgive us for taking you for granted and assuming our relationship with you rather than formally inviting you in. Father, we long for your glory. We long for you to fill our lives and our homes, to fill this church community with the fullness of your glory. Fill us with the glory of Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. And may we be changed by that glory. Help us to come to you on your terms to not treat your commands as suggestions, to live with the realization that through faith, Jesus can be a daily and ever present reality in our lives. May he have freedom. May he have all the room to, to change and to lead and to guide in our lives for we ask you in his precious name, amen. I hope this message has helped you to see how to get close to a holy God. If it stirred up questions, or if you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me a comment or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, then share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca.